welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot. This is the Elizabeth Elliot Gateway to Joy podcast. Elizabeth called out to her listeners to live to a higher standard each day, not to be satisfied with just throwing a little religion into our lives as some kind of a shallow substitute for giving God our best. In this podcast series, we will hear from family, friends, and others influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. Today, we continue our extended series on Operation Alka, her time in Ecuador, both before and after the death of her husband, Jim. Today, we look at two of the missionaries that died in that, uh, that Christian outreach, trying to reach the Alcas, Ed McCauley and Nate Saint. There's a statement that Jim Elliott is most famous for, isn't there? Are you familiar with it? Here's Jim and Elizabeth's daughter, Valerie, to remind us about that well-known saying. That quote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And what, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? What's most important? It's living for him and his glory. Valerie Elliott Shepherd. She'll tell us more about her dad later in the podcast. Specifically, what would Jim think about American Christians now? An interesting question. What would he think about American Christians these days? Well, right now we go back to 1989 for the first of the two Gateway to Joy programs we're featuring on this podcast. And then we'll soon be going to the story of Nate Saint. First, though, learn more about Ed McCulley. A job nobody else could handle is the topic. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says. And underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend Elizabeth Elliot talking with you this time about a job nobody else could handle. I've been telling you the story of two young men who went to Ecuador as missionaries, Jim Elliot and Pete Fleming, and a third man who was a buddy of Jim Elliott's when he was a college student was Ed McCauley. Let me tell you a little bit about Ed. When I think back to the students that I knew at Wheaton College, I would say that Ed would have been way down my list of prospective missionaries. I could not have imagined Ed McCauley being a missionary. We thought Ed was going to be president of the United States. He was very tall, very handsome, a football star, a track star. He was president of his class, six feet two, weighed 190. And when the Hearst newspapers in Ed's senior year in college sponsored a nationwide oratorical contest, there were 10,000 contestants, and Ed McCulley won the first place. Well, Ed was not exactly what we used to think of was one of the spiritual types. Do you know that kind of dichotomy where you think, well, these kids are the spiritual ones and those people are not? And somehow or other, we never thought of the football team as a spiritual crowd. But there was a time when Jim Elliott began to think that is an outrageous kind of distinction to make, and there's no reason in the world why football players shouldn't be just as spiritual as anybody else. And he befriended Ed and began to talk to him when they were still students about this business of missionary work. Nothing doing for Ed McCauley. He was headed for politics, and we knew that he would make a good one. He went to Marquette University, enrolled in law school, and began to 
study very hard with that ambition in mind. He took a job as a night clerk in a hotel, and one night Jim visited him there on that job where he was trying to get some studying done in the wee small hours of the morning. And Jim said to him, why don't you start reading the Bible? Well, it wasn't that Jim thought Ed didn't know the Bible. Ed grew up in a very strong Christian home and knew the Bible probably about as well as Jim did. But it was not as big a part of his life as it was of Jim's, and so Jim suggested that instead of spending all of his time there at the hotel desk in his law books, he really ought to give time to the scriptures as well. And so Ed McCulley wrote this letter to Jim in September of 1950. Since taking this job, things have happened. I've been spending my free time studying the Word. Each night, the Lord seemed to get hold of me a little more. Night before last, I was reading in Nehemiah. I finished the book and read it through again. Here was a man who left everything, as far as position was concerned, to go do a job nobody else could handle. And because he went, the whole remnant back in Jerusalem got right with the Lord. Obstacles and hindrances fell away, and a great work was done. Jim... I couldn't get away from it. The Lord was dealing with me. On the way home yesterday morning, I took a long walk and came to a decision which I know is of the Lord. In all honesty before the Lord, I say that no one or nothing beyond himself and the word has any bearing upon what I've decided to do. I have one desire now to live a life of reckless abandon for the Lord, putting all my energy and strength into it. Maybe he'll send me someplace where the name of Jesus Christ is unknown. Jim, I'm taking the Lord at his word, and I'm trusting him to prove his word. It's kind of like putting all your eggs in one basket, but we've already put our trust in him for salvation, so why not do it as far as our life is concerned? If there's nothing to this business of eternal life, we might as well lose everything in one crack and throw our present life away with our life hereafter. But if there is something to it, then everything else the Lord says must hold true likewise. Pray for me, Jim. Man, to think the Lord got hold of me just one day before I was to register for school. I've got my money put away and was all set to go. Today was registration day for my second year, so I went over to the school to let them know why I wouldn't be back. I really prayed, like the apostle asked the Ephesians to pray, that I might open my mouth boldly. I talked to all the fellows that I knew well. Then I went in to see a professor. I told him what I planned to do, and before I left, he had tears in his eyes. I went in to see another professor and talked to him. All I got was a cold farewell and a good luck wish. Well, that's it. Two days ago, I was a law student. Today, I'm an untitled nobody. Thanks, Jim, for the intercession on my behalf. Don't let up. And, brother, I'm really praying for you, too, as you're making preparation to leave. I only wish I were going with you. Well, you can imagine that Jim wished the same. But in the providence of God, these two men worked together as home missionaries. They went to a, a little town in southern Illinois called Cairo, spelled the same as Cairo, Egypt, and they began a radio program there called the March of Truth, and I can still hear their voices on that radio program with great earnestness and great certainty preaching the gospel. 
The results of their work in Cairo were not what anyone would call startling. But they began to learn to trust God. They began to realize that missionary life is not a life of glamour. Jim began to entertain the very fond hope that Ed McCulley would be the man who would go to Ecuador with him. They would be able to go two by two. But during that year, Ed McCulley met a young woman from Pontiac, Michigan, named Mary Lou Hobolth. He wrote to Mary Lou about two things that he had been praying definitely about. First, that the Lord will give us wisdom in our relationship, even in the business of letter writing. Second, that as long as we've got anything to do with each other, that each of us will be an influence upon the other for closer fellowship with the Lord. I don't mean that we'll be preaching to each other, but just that our attraction for each other will be a means of attracting us more to the Lord. I know that's the way you feel, too. Their friendship ripened very fast, and in April, Ed and Mary Lou became engaged. Wonderful news for Ed and Mary Lou, terrible news for Jim, because he had hoped for Ed's being single to go with him to Ecuador. On May 29, 1951, Ed McCulley wrote to Mary Lou Hobolf, One month from today you will have lost all your freedom and will be subject to my iron rule, my unflinching law, and my cruel command. You have exactly 31 days to reconsider. Do you think you'll really be able to put up with me for the rest of your life? It won't be easy. There will be plenty of times you'll wonder why on earth you married me. Have you reconsidered? Now let me tell you, that I love you with all of my heart. Mary Lou did not reconsider. They were married in June in her home church, the First Baptist of Pontiac, Michigan. It was not very long before they were in missionary medical school in Los Angeles, and in December of 1952, they sailed for Ecuador. They were still studying Spanish in Quito, in the same house where I had studied Spanish, the home of the audiences, when they received a radio message one morning from Jim Elliott and Pete Fleming saying that the entire station on which they had been working, Shandia, had been completely wiped out by a flood. Can you come down? Well, that was Ed's call to the jungle. He told Mary Lou that he was going down to see if he could help out his buddies Jim and Ed. He went to Shandia, and the three men conferred together as to how they should plan their future work in the jungle. It seemed wise that they should make a reconnoitering trip through the southern part of the jungle where there were Quechuas who had never had a missionary. And so they took a trip down the Bobonasa River and on that trip met a man by the name of Atanasio in a little place called Puyupungu. Atanasio had two wives and about 15 children and he said that he would welcome a mission station there. He would even help to build it, and he would like the missionaries to put in a school so that his children could learn. An excerpt from Ed's diary tells of their first days in the rainforest after he and Mary Lou had moved from Quito to Shandia. We are settled in well by now. Life gets to be a routine of buying, selling, treating the sick, fixing kerosene and gasoline appliances, trying to learn a language. It's a fight to get time for the latter, also time for Bible study and prayer. It's hard to stay on top of it all, hard to keep rejoicing, hard to love these ungrateful Indians. 
It's hard to keep our primary purpose in view when we get so swamped with secondary things. I wonder if I'm talking to anyone today that feels exactly the same. Somebody who's doing a job that looks like no job at all. It's a lot of work, it's a lot of sweat and a lot of trouble, and maybe it's endless and relentless. Maybe it's a mother's job. Maybe it's a job that you feel you'll never get any credit for. But you know, in God's story, I believe that the job you're doing is a job that nobody else could handle. Not right now. It's a job that God has given to you to do, and therefore it's a job that nobody else could handle. Are you thinking, what am I doing here? Why am I marking time in this place? Think of the man, Ed McCulley, who went from law school to an Indian-style house, from being a brilliant orator to being what the Kichwas thought was a bumbling idiot. He was willing to do that for Jesus Christ. From 1989, the Ed McCauley story, a job nobody else could handle. Next, we'll learn about innovative pilot Nate Saint. After that, Valerie will talk about what her dad would think of American Christians these days. This originally was Gateway to Joy broadcast number 86. You are loved with an everlasting love. That's what the Bible says, and underneath are the everlasting arms. This is your friend, Elizabeth Elliot talking with you this time about being expendable for God. Avionetta Uyarimung. Those are Quechua words. Quechuas are Indians in the eastern jungle of Ecuador, where I used to live. And those words, avionetta Uyarimung, mean here comes the airplane. I want to tell you the story today about the man who was flying that little airplane. His name was Nate Saint. As the Indians scattered off the airstrip and tried to get all the dogs and cows and anything else that might be obstructing the landing of the plane, they would line up along the side, and as the plane came to a stop, a sunburned, sandy-haired, blue-eyed man would jump out of the plane. His name was Nate, Nate Saint from Philadelphia. He served the station where Jim Elliott, Pete Fleming, and Ed and Mary Lou McCulley were working. He would unload from the plane things like a 100-pound sack of flour, a 15-gallon can of fuel, maybe some meat, certainly some mail, usually some medicine, maybe a couple of new brooms, penicillin. Whatever the missionaries had needed and asked for by shortwave radio, Nate would have in his plane. He would stand chatting with the missionaries, occasionally had time to go and sit down in their house and have a glass of lemonade. But if he did that, there would always be the little ping of an alarm watch. Nate Saint was one of the most methodical of men, and he had his day's flying schedule worked to the second. He knew exactly when he had to leave that station in order to get back to the base or to the next station where he had other things to deliver. So he always wore an alarm watch. He was a methodical man, disciplined, organized, a man of great humor, a man of sensitivity. I don't think I've ever known anyone more gentle, more thoughtful. He was one of the founders of the Missionary Aviation Fellowship, 
and the one who instituted the flying program in the eastern jungle of Ecuador, in little place which had been originally a Shell Oil Company base called Shellmeta, which was almost the end of the road before pure jungle begins. Nate Saint transformed the lives of missionaries in the eastern jungle. What had taken them one day's walking, they could now do in five minutes of flying. Nate and Marge's house in Shelmeta was not very big when I first arrived there. He enlarged it several years later, but they shared what they had with any and all who came. I don't suppose there were many nights in a year when Nate and Marge didn't share their house with guests. Marge said, I cook for ordinary people, two or twelve, and then I double it, because she never knew who was going to arrive. Nate had done everything he possibly could to simplify the flying program, to reduce the weight of the plane so that every possible ounce could be used for the missionaries and their cargo. He took out the comfortable seats in the Piper and replaced them with canvas seats, which weighed only one pound and were extremely uncomfortable. And just to give you an idea of a letter that Nate wrote, During the last war, we were taught to recognize that in order to obtain our objective, we had to be willing to be expendable. This very afternoon, thousands of soldiers are known by their serial numbers as men who are expendable. We know there is only one answer to our country's demand that we share in the price of freedom. Yet when the Lord Jesus asks us to pay the price for world evangelization, we often answer without a word. We cannot go. We say it costs too much. Nate's convictions about expendability did not lessen the sense of caution, which is ingrained in the fiber of any first-rate flyer. Nate was certainly a first-rate flyer. And one of the things which he was always concerned with was safety. That was his primary concern. And one day, he was sitting there at his house in Shelmeta when he noticed a truck going past the house with a small boy on the roof of the cab holding a five-gallon can. There was an older boy on the front fender holding the lower end of a siphon pointed at the carburetor. Suddenly, something clicked in Nate's mind. Here was a simple alternate fuel system. Why couldn't he have an alternate fuel system in his airplane? If that lumbering old truck was going to climb 6,000 feet in second gear with a kid pouring gasoline through a hose into the carburetor, why couldn't he develop an alternate fuel system for his plane? He lay awake that night thinking about it, plotting it in his mind, and the next day he took one of Marge's three-gallon cooking oil tins, he made a balsa wood fairing for the tank, strapped the thing under the struts of the wing of his plane, and lo and behold, an alternate fuel system. A dead engine in the air, he told himself, will windmill fast enough to stay out of those critical lower speeds. The next morning, the first tests of his alternate fuel system proved that it could work without a hitch on the ground, and the moment had come to test it in the air. He described the experience. 2,000 feet above the landing strip, I pulled the mixture control to idle cutoff. 
It was quite a novel experience for a fellow who had listened so long, hoping never to hear it happen. But a turn of the new little T-handle on the instrument panel brought with it a wonderful feeling as the engine wound back up to smooth, full power. For the next 20 minutes, the normal fuel source was shut off tight. Even though the carburetor was bypassed completely, the engine never missed. It picked up from the windmilling condition without a cough. I put the plane into every imaginable attitude at various power settings, and it never faltered. Feeling for the best mixture setting with emergency T-handle was no more difficult than leaning the engine with the regular mixture control. Same thing. The whole rig, tank, and all weighs only four pounds. The only thing it has in common with the ship's fuel system is the engine. It takes care of all the common troubles, such as clogged vents and broken lines. He not only invented an alternate fuel system, but he invented what he called a bucket drop. This was a method whereby he could circle the plane about a mile in diameter and slowly lower a bucket on a line from the plane. As the plane circled, the line spiraled, and the bucket came to rest on the ground at the vortex of the cone. Someone on the ground could then grab hold of the bucket, take out whatever message might be in it, or even a telephone, a ground-to-air telephone, or he could put a message into the bucket. This was a method of immense importance to missionaries who were on stations where there was no airstrip, and they might need an emergency drop, for example, of snake serum, or they perhaps need to send out a message. And so Nate's bucket drop, which I'm told aeronautical engineers have studied on paper and have declared will never work, worked beautifully. Just to give you a little background on Nate Saint, he was born in Pennsylvania in 1923. His older brother Sam, who became a pilot with American Airlines, took Nate flying when he was just a little boy. He suffered osteomyelitis at one time, later went to night school in order to get his college work, then he became a mechanic in a small airport, and then joined the Air Force cadet program. This was a tremendous thrill for him to be accepted in the cadet program. But the night before he was to report for his first military flying instruction, he became aware of, the, of pain around his old osteomyelitis scar. Yanking up his trouser leg, he discovered the truth. It was inflamed. All his boyhood ambitions of the past years wrapped up and focused on this tremendous opportunity to get into big-time flying suddenly collapsed. I didn't say a word to my roommate, Nate wrote, but jumped into bed, turned out the light without a word. There I barred myself into the small, dark confines of my heart, which had now become a dungeon for solitary confinement. Except for the tossing and choked, then sighing respiration, no one would have known the thing that was almost overwhelming me. No fooling. I was heartbroken. The shock of losing the opportunity of getting out of flying putt-putts into real airplanes left Nate in a state of numbness. But one year after he was grounded, he was sent to Detroit on detached service to study new and larger engines that were soon to be on the line. And there at a New Year's Eve worship service, he felt that the Lord was turning his heart to the mission field. 
What was going on in the service wasn't important. He recalled later, I wasn't hearing anything with my ears anyhow. I pleaded helplessly with my Heavenly Father for the answer that stood between me and the peace that Jesus had said should be ours. Now you've heard about people being spoken to by God. I don't know about the other fellow, but that night I saw things differently. Bing. Like that. Just as though a different Kodachrome slide had been tossed onto the screen between my ears. As soon as I could, I stepped out of the building and started out, just to get away from the people. A joy such as I had never known since I accepted Jesus' forgiveness for my sins seemed to leave me almost weak with gratitude. It was the first time that I had ever really heard that verse, Follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. The old life of chasing things that are of a temporal sort seemed absolutely insane. The Nate Saint Story, here on the Elizabeth Elliott Gateway to Joy podcast. On a recent conference call, Elizabeth and Jim's daughter, Valerie, talked about what her parents would think about many in the Christian church these days. <laughs> he would be horrified, <laughs> just as my mother would be horrified, too. There's just way too much silken self as I read that poem. There's too much of this expectation of, I need to be comfortable. It's about me. It's about what I want. Uh, it's about how I feel. And she, she would have just decried that continuously. It's, it's not about our feelings. Yes, God gave us feelings. They're not all wrong. But we are not to be focused on how I feel about everything. And that's what happened in the 60s and 70s. That, that kind of jargon started coming out more and more. And she just shook her head in disgust most of the time. And many of you have heard my father's quote about Americans don't need a call to the mission field. They need a kick in the seat of their pants. And uh, he felt that too many Americans were just too comfortable and satisfied. And it's still very true. It's still very true. Thanks, Valerie. We've come to the end of today's podcast, but we have much more of the story to tell of Elizabeth's life in Ecuador. We'll continue that next time as we focus on the man from Montana, another of the five missionaries who sought to reach out to the Alka people. The Elizabeth Elliott Gateway to Joy podcast is presented in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, Charlotte, North Carolina. Until next time, may God remind you daily, you are loved with an everlasting love. And underneath are the everlasting arms.